last year, way back last year, we had started this study through the book of Revelation. The last time I preached on this was around November the 6th. So now we're going to dive into chapter 19. We finished in chapter 18 and now picking up here. So I draw your attention to verses 6 through 10. Um, this is a chapter of praise. The first part is praise unto God for what he has done in bringing uh, the rain, his reign to bear upon all creation. And now verses 6 through 10 continue that theme. So follow with me as I read this passage. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. That you have never failed and you never will. As we come to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would work within us. We recognize that much of your word can be difficult to understand. And Lord, that is certainly true with revelation. But Lord, we believe that it is truth. And we believe, Father, as we read your word, you are speaking to us. So we ask you, Lord, to unclog our ears and allow us to hear you. Work within us, Father, so that we may be transformed to be more like Jesus and that our lives will be filled with worship. We ask this to your glory and through the mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name, and the church said, Amen. A few years ago, there was a television commercial that portrayed a young man who was waiting at the airport. Now, as the commercial told its 60-second story, the story became that this young man was from another country that had the tradition of arranged marriages. And even though he was clearly living in the United States, his family had still insisted upon this tradition. So he is at the airport holding a bouquet of flowers waiting for his bride to arrive. But it's clear that he is very nervous. Because just as the flowers were bright, 
and encouraging, his face was sour and anxious. Second guessing whether this was really a good idea. But when the moment came and she stepped off the plane, everything changed. His face began to match the color of the beautiful flowers he was carrying. The dour expression became one of joy. You see, one thing had happened. He saw his bride and he was captivated by her. And in that moment where he saw her, what had become a duty was changed into delight. Just because he caught sight of his bride. Now often we begin serving and worshiping God just like this young man. We come to worship God not out of a sense of anticipation or delight, but out of a sense of duty. And often because of that, our hearts are not in it. We are grudgingly there, holding flowers before God, but our face doesn't match the gifts that we are bringing. We know that we should live holy lives, but it becomes a burden because it's done out of duty. And when something is done purely out of duty, often joy becomes a casualty of that exchange. But I would submit to you that there is one thing that can change that attitude. There is one thing that can change our sense of duty to a sense of delight. That can change the supposed drudgery of worship to a sheer joy in being in the presence of God. And that is seeing God. When we get a vision of who God is and His grandeur, we are energized to do His mission. Once we gaze upon His glory, obedience ceases to be arduous. Once we grasp His great love, worship becomes something that is done out of the sheer joy of it and not out of duty. Now, Revelation shows us God. Now, I know in coming to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of trepidation because it's difficult to interpret. And in one sense, we think, oh, why do we have to dive into Revelation again? Pastor, God granted you an escape route. But to do so would be to step away from seeing the grandeur of God. And I really wish that we could step away from all the confusion, from all the different interpretations, and just come back to what I think, what I believe, is the main point of Revelation. And that is to see God in Jesus Christ. Revelation begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book shows us who God is. It shows us who Jesus is. And it shows us that He is at the center of history, controlling history. And it shows us that He is to be at the center of worship. I really agree with what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. A catechism is a means of instruction. And it's instruction that is done through a series of questions and answers. The very first question in the Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? That's a way of saying, what are we here for? What were you and I made for? What is our reason for existence? And the answer is this. The chief end of man 
is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's worship. Worship is to glorify God and to, to enjoy Him. You and I were made to worship God in all of life so that in our work, God is to be at the center. In our play, God is to be at the center. In our homes, God is to be at the center. In our church, God is to be at the center. And Revelation is written to churches that are struggling with keeping God at the center. You see, the first readers of Revelation struggled with the same two overarching temptations that you and I struggle with. Two things they were facing that were threatening to pull them away from keeping God and Jesus Christ at the center. They were the twin temptations of persecution and pleasure. You see, persecution will tempt us to remove Jesus from the center of things to keep life from being painful. So when persecution increases and we feel the pain of following Jesus, the temptation is to become a chameleon Christian and to blend in with the culture so that we don't have to suffer. That was a real temptation for the churches then as it is today. But the other temptation is just as real and just as dangerous. It's the temptation of pleasure. See, not every church that read this letter was suffering. The church at Laodicea had no need. John writes, according to Jesus' command, that church was wealthy, at ease. In fact, they were so at ease that they had forgotten that they needed Jesus Christ. And that is the danger of pleasure. We are tempted to forget that we need Jesus. So those twin temptations loom over us just as they did to the original recipients of this letter. Because we too are tempted to forsake Christ. These temptations have not gone away in the last 2,000 years. So Revelation is written to the believer to say, don't give up. When times are tough, do not forsake following Jesus Christ. And when times are easy, do not forget that you need Jesus. And it is the call through the book of Revelation to every believer to pursue purity in a pagan world. It is this call, this prophetic call to continually seek God through Jesus Christ. Now the challenge of Revelation is that it is written in what's called apocalyptic language it was a, a form of writing that used images to strike the imagination to transform the heart it's not allegories it's written with these images of a of, for example a beast rising up out of these waters that are, are chaos this beast with seven heads and it's meant to excuse me to strike your imagination to say I don't want any part of that so that our hearts are changed the images of saying, I heard the, the, the line of Judah, but when I turned to see it, there was a lamb. These images that are used to strike our imagination, to grab our thinking, so that our hearts are transformed. Because of the imagery, revelation is cyclic in nature. In other words, there are ideas and images that are repeated, but they are repeated with intensification. For example, judgment is a common theme in revelation. 
And it's often expressed through the opening of seals, the blaring of a trumpet, or the pouring out of a bowl. Judgment is opened as the seals are. Judgment unfolds as the trumpets sound. Judgment is poured out. But with each expression of judgment, it becomes more intense until we come to the, really the, the, the beginning of the conclusion of the book. Chapter 19 focuses on the culmination of history. It focuses upon the point toward which history is moving. It focuses upon the the apex of the pyramid, as it were, as history is moving toward the end that God has deemed it, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, just prior to this, in chapters 17 and 18, the focus has been upon a city known as Babylon. Babylon is a representative, an archetype of the system opposed to God. It's based upon the Old Testament where Babylon was a literal Babylon. And it represented systems, political systems, economic systems, recreational, every system that rises up against God, that shakes its fist at God and says, we don't need you. And that attitude is often represented by cities. The readers of Rome, Babel, or the readers of Revelation, Babylon is Rome. And throughout history, you can point to cities that became representative of the attitude of shaking their fist in the face of God. Systems that are in revolt against God. You see, Babylon is man trying to live apart from God. And listen carefully. Babylon will always collapse because man cannot live apart from God when civilization is divorced from God it will become uncivilized any culture that denies God has sown the seeds of its own demise and God will always bring judgment upon Babylon but remember As judgment unfolds in Revelation, it intensifies and it increases to a point. So we see in chapters 17 and 18 where God has brought his final judgment upon Babylon. And he gives the call to the Christians, come out. Don't be sucked into Babylon so that you become at ease with the culture around you. Don't blend in because God will be victorious. And chapter 19 comes to that point where Jesus returns. Now at Trinity, it is our firm belief that according to the Bible, Jesus Christ will return one day bodily, physically coming to establish his kingdom. We believe that. When he ascended into heaven, the angels came and they spoke to the the apostles that were standing there with their mouths open. And they said, why are you standing here? He will return in like matter. Jesus will come back. And chapter 19 begins the description of the return of Jesus Christ. The return that destroys Babylon. Now chapter 19 uses an image. A metaphor that we're very familiar with. I mean, we are Baptists. So this picture ought to resonate with us because it is the picture of a supper table. It's found in chapter 19. In fact, what we see in chapter 19, there are two different suppers, but they are as diametrically opposed as night and day. 
They serve two very different meals. In chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, we read in verse 9 of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is where believers enjoy the presence of God, where we, we bask in His goodness, where there is joy overflowing. But the second supper, the second table, is mentioned later in the book, later in the chapter. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That's describing the destruction of the ungodly. And these two tables face us with a decision. Do you want to be at the table, enjoying the meal, or will you choose to rebel against God and be the meal? He is saying that's the choice before you. And it's clear as he paints the picture, specifically in verses 6 through 10, that the one we should long for is to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because verses 6 through 10 is an invitation for us to join in with the worship of God. That as we read of the hallelujahs unfolding, that we will add our hallelujah to that and to say we too will praise God because hallelujah is the central theme of verses 1 through 10. Hallelujah literally means praise Yahweh. It's a universal word that means praise be to the Lord. Look, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Now remember, this is following the destruction of Babylon and there is praise that erupts. Hallelujah! Look at verse 3. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! Look down to verse 4. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Okay, now it's not a trick question. In fact, the answer is there on the page. The 24 elders fell and they called out, Amen. Verse 6. This sound of like a mighty peals of thunder crying out. We'll get there. See, this is an invitation to the reader, to us, to say, I want to let my voice add to that hallelujah. I want to praise God because He has brought salvation to His people and brought justice upon Babylon. He has righted the wrongs that happen when people rebel against Him. So verse 6 begins with this sound of worship in heaven. And guess what? It is loud. Look at the description of it. He hears what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Like, like, think of it like the, the sound of Niagara Falls as the millions and millions of gallons come tumbling over, over the rocks, and it's a sound that's almost deafening. It's like the sound of mighty peals of thunder that echo and shake you out of a sound sleep. There is no denying the worship that is taking place here. And it is worship in response to a command that is issued out of the throne. Verse 5, a voice from the throne says, Praise our God, all of His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And this thunderous, loud roar comes out. Hallelujah. It is so loud. 
It is so loud that John says it seemed to be a voice. Now this answers one of the many misconceptions about heaven. Many times when you talk with a, a non-believer and sometimes even believers about heaven, their response is, okay, so you're telling me that heaven will be worship. I've been to worship services. I have sat in worship services. And you're telling me for eternity I'm going to be seated at a worship service? That doesn't exactly get me up out of bed in the morning. They don't understand. When you grasp the, the picture of this worship, it's something you can't help but long for. Now, picture it like this. I want you to picture Nayland Stadium. Now, I'm picking UT just because it's close. You may have your favorite team that you want to insert in this illustration, and that's fine. There's an opportunity to repent later in the service. So, but just for the sake of the illustration, okay, you're at a University of Tennessee football game, 102,000 people. They're playing their bitter rival, and the game has gone back and forth, back and forth, and man, you've been invested into it. And in the last second, UT scores a touchdown, and they win as the clock runs down, and 102,000 people erupt in a loud scream, Woo! And they start singing 102,000 people in unison. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. You know it now. <laughs> All right. Now, at that moment, you've been through this game. The crowd is singing, erupting. Are you going to sit back and say, my goodness, this is so boring. When will they stop that so we can get out of here and go home? No, you're not. Because you've been invested in it, you are enjoying the celebration. That's the picture here. God has been victorious, and for eternity, we bask in his joy, singing, not Rocky Top, but Hallelujah to the Lamb. And it will increase in joy because God is the source of never-ending joy that can never be depleted and can never run out. So we will go from joy to joy to joy to joy to joy to joy to joy forever and ever and ever. That, my brother and sister, is heaven. That's the picture being portrayed here. And it's anything but boring. So I ask you this morning, will you had your hallelujah? There's reasons to do that. It's not just based on emotion, which emotion is not bad. Joy is an emotion. But look at the substantive reasons for our joy. Add your hallelujah because look in verse 6. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Amen. Praise Yahweh. He reigns. Now, it is not that God did not reign prior to this. But this statement is signifying that he has brought about the destruction of those who would thumb their nose at his power and authority. And he has established that his kingdom and his kingdom alone is eternal. He has revealed Babylon to be a cheap imposter. And now there's no longer any doubt about his deity. There's no longer any question about his power. And that is incredible good news. In fact, I would submit to you that the truth that God reigns is the foundation for the gospel. I say that based upon Isaiah 52.7. You'll see this upon the screen. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of what? Happiness. Who publishes salvation. Now what is the message that is good news, that is happiness, that brings about salvation? Three words. Your God reigns. That truth is to be an anchor to our souls. Believe me, when your soul becomes anxious, I know when my soul has become anxious, I come back to that anchor. My God reigns. When we become fearful about the future, will you remember that God reigns? That He does not make mistakes? We're going to be reminded in a few weeks that not even Satan operates outside of the power and the control of God. Our God reigns. And when I realize, as I have so many times in the last seven months, that I cannot control anything, I come back to the reality that my God reigns and He is in control. And you know what I find at that moment? When my soul is heavy and the tears will not stop, I find a sense of peace and release that can say, God, you are in control. Because he's in control, I may not see exactly how things fit, but it does not change the truth that my God reigns. And you know what that brings? It brings the second reason we should add our hallelujah. Our joy will be complete in God. You see, joy is the theme of verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult. Let us overflow and give him glory. Now why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Joy is at its fullest because God's sovereign reign has been brought about and culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the language of joy. The idea of a marriage feast is to be one of celebration and joy. Here's, here's the question that I've thought of this, this week and wrestled with. Why is it called the marriage supper of the Lamb? I mean, there's a number of images that could have been used. Marriage supper of the king. Marriage supper of, of the lion. Lambs don't marry that I know of. Unless it's making a point. That this marriage, and that's talking about our relationship with God. It's described as a marriage. is brought about because of the sacrificial death of Jesus. Remember, throughout Revelation, anytime there's been this mention of a lion, you see a lamb, and it's a lamb, a lamb who has wounds that caused its death. And that death brought about the salvation of God's people. So we are saying here that when we come to this moment of being with God, it is brought about because of Jesus Christ. No other way. The only way we are in a marriage with God and unified with Him is through the Lamb of God who is Jesus. And now He says this picture is complete. Well, it's not that He wasn't with His church earlier. Chapters 1 through 3, where is Jesus? He's walking amongst His church. But now at this point, He is physically present with Him and we are physically present with Him and we are there without the presence of sin. We are there fully in His presence. And we rejoice because look at the, the last part of the verse. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So how is the bride ready? She's clothed in righteous deeds. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
the bride is ready because she has been tried in the furnace of Babylon and she has come out pure seeking to do what is in accord with God's will now the question comes about how did the bride get ready we see two things that seem contradictory but I would argue they are two sides of the same coin at the end of verse 7 the bride has made herself ready but then in verse 8, it was granted her. And the implication is, it was granted her by God. Now I want you to think of it in terms like this. I did a little research, and according to the Bridal Association of America, the average cost of a wedding dress is $1,505. Average cost. Fathers, we fork that over. One thousand, you know, we give enough plasma to get the dress. All right? $1,505 on average. Now think about this. Bride has picked out this beautiful dress. She has said, say yes to the dress. Oh, Lord, help me. All right? Father's bought it. It's there. But she gets up that morning and she says, you know what? The dress is pretty and all, but I've got a sunflower you know, dress that I'm comfortable in. I think I want to wear that. It's blue, it's got yellow sunflowers, it's great. And you know what? Getting your hair all fixed up, I just don't want to go through that today. I want to put on a hat. Hats are good. Makeup? Pfft. I don't want to fool with makeup. It's my wedding day. Do brides do that? No. They may want to. But you know what they do? They say, I want to look radiant. I want to step into what my father has purchased. I want to do what I can to spend hours, hours, hours getting, getting beautified so that when the time comes and I see my groom, I'm ready. And that is the image being portrayed here. Our righteousness has been bought by God in Jesus Christ. And he is saying, now, step into it. Wear it. And the church in the, the crucible of persecution and temptation has stepped into the righteousness that God has provided. The church has trusted Jesus in the midst of persecution. And now the time has come and bride and groom are together. Now I want you to know I do believe we have a responsibility to live righteously. But I also believe that the weight of our efforts will have to rest upon God and what he has done. It must. To know that my righteousness can avail nothing. I must rest upon him. Once again, allow me to use an illustration from the sports world. In the 1990s, early 90s, Michael Jordan and the Bulls were at the top of the NBA. Still today recognized as the greatest player ever. On that team in 1991, I believe it was, there was a reserve by the name of Stacy King. He averaged 15 minutes a game. I think he averaged maybe five points a game. He was a role player. But in a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round of the playoffs, Stacy King made a game-winning shot. He says it was one of the greatest games of his life. In fact, he tells people that that is the night that he and Michael Jordan combined to score 70 points. Oh, yeah. He said, I tell my kids about it. That night, Michael Jordan and I combined and scored 70 points together. Jordan had 69, and I had one. That's how I see our righteousness. I have to rely on God. I have a responsibility, believer, to be prepared. But I rely on what He has done. And when we rely on Him and we know that He is faithful, we will add our hallelujah 
to the hallelujahs lifted up here. That is our challenge. He says, blessed are those that are invited. Now, don't be thrown off by the change of the metaphors here. In one place, we are his bride, and the other, we are invited. The point is being there. Apocalyptic language will mix metaphors readily. The whole point is being there. And when he says these are the true words of God, John gets excited. Verse 10, he falls down at his feet. He falls down at the feet of the angel, and the angel says, Don't worship me. Don't worship me. Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, as we add our hallelujah, let us be careful that we add it to the right person. Only God, only God is worthy of our worship. This last phrase has caused no small amount of struggles in interpreting it. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice the angel said to him, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, the way I understand this is in two ways. First, when we hear prophecy, we automatically think of terms of telling the future. I think that's the, the lesser of these two, but nonetheless, it's there. And he's saying, guess what? The future this is a testimony about Jesus. In other words, any sense of looking to the future must culminate in who Jesus is. When we get sidetracked in, in worrying about things and dates and, and things of that nature and we miss the focal point of Jesus, we're misdirected. But the other part is this. The majority of prophetic language is meant to call the church to repentance. When we speak of a prophetic voice, we're saying of a voice that calls people to return to God. The testimony of Jesus, the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That as we proclaim the return of Jesus Christ, we are proclaiming, come to Him. Turn to Him. And church, a joyless Christianity will not be attractive to a world that is seeking joy. So I ask you this morning, if you desire to add your hallelujah, will you come back to the reality that God is great? Will you come back to the reality that He reigns? Will you let the joy of knowing that you are His radiate and will you know that God is great? In 1717, King Louis XIV of France died. He asked all throughout his life that he be called Louis the Great or Louis the Great. When the time of his death came, he wanted everyone to know that he indeed was great. So he had left instructions that at his burial, the cathedral was not to have any candles lit except for one candle that was placed next to his casket, which was made of pure gold. The time came, the bishop, who was very courageous and wise, began to speak. And as he began to speak, he reached down and he snuffed out the candle and said, Only God is great. When we recognize that only God is great, our hallelujahs will be added to that heavenly choir. Do you know that today? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. This morning, I want to fall in the, the, the line of what I believe is the point of revelation, and that is to point people to Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to ask Nathan to come with me and join me here in the front. Both of us are here. If you need to respond in any way, believer, if you've gotten sidetracked and you recognize this morning that your worship is misplaced, that you have become joyless in your attempt to follow Christ. If you want to come and kneel at the kneeling benches, do so. If you want to come and take me or Nathan by the hand and pray, do so. If you're anxious and your anxiety is overwhelming you, we look and be reminded that your God reigns. And this morning, if there's any of you that have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be faithful. I want to invite you to come and take either me or Nathan by the hand and say, I don't understand what this means, what, what, what Pastor Mark meant when he talked about Jesus as the Lamb of God. And we will take our time to walk through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and after this prayer, we will stand together. And when we sing, I invite you to come. Father, Thank you. Thank you for the confidence that we have in you. Knowing that you reign. Knowing that the world systems that rise against you, Lord, will indeed collapse because you are just. Father, remind us of your greatness and bring us to be a people characterized by worship. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and as we sing, if you need to respond, please come.
just to bow our heads as Julie and the other instrumentalists continue to play just in a time of, of asking God to work within us you know every one of us in here have many things in common one of them is that we desire joy you know when David had fallen away from God in Psalm 51 he asked he prayed Lord restore to me the joy of my salvation is that a prayer that you need to pray today to say Lord restore to me the joy that I long for the joy of knowing you going to draw the invitation out in just a moment we're going to come back and just sing the first verse of this song again you can pray right where you are Lord restore to me there may be sins that the Lord brings to mind that you need to repent you can, you can do that where you are but the Lord may also be asking you to take another definitive step of coming to kneel and pray or to have someone pray with you father you know our hearts bring us to obey as we sing this final verse lord may you be glorified and speak to us unmistakably and clearly in jesus name amen let's sing this this first verse together once more you in just a moment we're going to be seated but we're going to worship the God the God through I didn't mean to put that definite article in there but it's very appropriate if you want to get grammatically and theologically correct um, we're going to worship through giving of our tithes and offerings Benny Van Hus is our deacon of the week so I'm going to ask Benny if he will come forward and lead us in our offertory prayer 